I rang the Camelwood Post Office Hotel, and I remember an old guy, Billy Palmer, had, was taking care of it at the time. And I just said, look, I'm, I'm Fee, I'm from Melbourne. I'd like to get up there and um, work in the outback. And um, he just said to me, can you pour grog? I said, no, I've never done it, but I'll, I can learn. He said, right, I girl, that's what I want to hear. G'day and welcome to episode 29 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and today we're sitting down with Fiona Baird. A few months ago, Hugh Dawson said to me, Ollie, you've got to get Fee on the podcast. So, trusting Hugh's word, I thought I'd better reach out. And uh, I gave Fee a call where we had an initial chat. She's one of those people that's so welcoming that immediately you feel like you've known her for years. Her journey potentially comes across as someone who was always destined for agriculture, but she actually came from New Zealand initially as a makeup artist. Before a life-changing event led her to close her eyes, put her finger on a map, and well, the rest is history. She's worked across the Cape as a headstock woman, across various properties in Northern Australia, supporting live export businesses and boats, as well as in markets supporting communities with how they handle livestock and improving animal welfare. She now runs her own clothing business, Apple Tree Flats, where she's supporting women in Indonesia. This chat is incredibly fascinating. Fee is just such an interesting person. So I hope that you enjoy the chat as much as I did. So today's guest is Fiona Baird. A quick disclaimer, Fee, that I reckon um, we'd get on pretty well if we were together mm. in real life. Um, yeah. Although we've only met once over the phone, but how have you been going? Yeah, really well, thank you, Ol. Um, keeping busy, lots of uh, cattle ships and uh, definitely the apple tree flat, the fashion side of my life is really taking off. So, um, yeah, couldn't be better in that regard. Yeah. And I can't wait to, so we're going to jump into a, a few different topics, which you've you've already given me the head start with. But, um, yeah, just as a very quick intro, like, can you tell me a bit more about who you are <laughs> and what you do? Okay, well, um, I was raised in North Canterbury of the South Island. Uh, my father managed a couple of um, cattle and sheep stations as we were growing up. Uh, we were at Coromico and Mendip Hills, which is around the Parnassus and Cheviot area of the South Island. So um, I was sort of raised in, around the animals and the cattle and, the, and everything, so it sort of ingrained in me. Um, then I went, we went up to Blenheim after that and... Um, I went to school up there and continued on to study art at ATI in Auckland. Um, and with that, my partner at the time was a cameraman. So one day he was um, doing a bit of work on a New Zealand film and they needed a makeup artist. They needed someone to put foundation on all the uh, actresses. And he called me in and said, right, you can jump in there. And I think I got paid $400 for a day's work. And back then in New Zealand, Shit, I might as well just taken the rest of the month off, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, but um, so I got into makeup and I went and studied for a year doing um, makeup for um, production and uh, um, still fo uh, photographic work, uh, a lot of catwalk work, and then I ended up doing some prosthetics there for a while. Um, and after that, I worked for myself for a little while doing some makeup and bits and pieces in New Zealand, and then one day I just decided right. I'm going to Australia and I'm going to go and try to be a famous makeup artist over there. I had high hopes of working with Nicole Kidman and um, Russell Crowe and all those guys. But when I got here, I just found that 
um, I, yeah, I wouldn't have cut it. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. And so just flipping it back a, a few steps there when you obviously went down the makeup artist path, but do you remember um, what you wanted to be when you're at school? A vet or a stock agent. Really? Yeah. I remember when I was at Mendip Pills, I used to, I said, I had my brother and I, that was basically the only, we were basically the only children there for a while. And I would go out into the back paddock where mum had a big clothesline and I would hang up, give her a hang, you know, hang out the clothes and I would pretend that I was a stock agent and I'd talk to mum, like I'd ask her about buying sheep and cattle and stuff. Yeah, I do remember that quite vividly. I wanted to be the first female stock agent in New Zealand. I thought it was yeah, a wow. fabulous job. Yeah. That's a hell of a long way from makeup, being a makeup artist. Yeah, well, that just, I've always loved fashion and art and design and I've always loved, you know, trying to, I love, I love a bit of makeup. I do love a bit of lippy. I was, a, I really wanted to be a fabric printer in the beginning when I studied the art and I just moved into the makeup because that was the um, industry my partner was in at the time. And so I just took it from there. I had a couple of, he, I used to do a little bit of extra work or featured extra work in movies and stuff over there. And the money was good for New Zealand. Um, yeah, if you're in, in production and in film production, the money was good. Yeah. yeah wow. So I just went into makeup. But in saying that too, I found the people that I worked with in that industry, especially the talent, as we call them. So I saw a lot of news, news readers and models. They were the unhappiest people I've ever met in my life, actually. Mm. Yeah, wow. It's uh, looks, looks all fun and dandy, doesn't it? But below yeah. the surface. Yeah, it's a, a lot of lack of confidence, especially in models, I found, yeah. And so for you, because this just sounds like your life's gone in a, well, not even a circle. It's just ended up on a path of, of where it was probably destined to go, maybe initially. But Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So that transition out of, um, out of being a makeup artist came from a bit of tragedy. But what was, yeah, kind of the, the moment that spurred you on to say, all right, I'm done? I remember walking down Queen Street, I think it was in Melbourne. I just finished my shift. So I used to do a bit of makeup and then in the afternoons I worked in a Brazilian waxing salon and I hated it. Um, nasty job. Anyway, I'd been walking, I was walking down the street and I got a phone call from my brother, I think it was, and he said, Uncle Ray's died suddenly. And Uncle Ray was very close to me, close to my family, uh, my father's side of the family. And I just thought, you know, Bugger it. Life's so short, I want to change. I want to do something else. So I got home to my place in, oh, shivers, I forget now, where we were living, just out East Melbourne. And I had a map. I always had a map on my wall. I pulled it down. I shut my eyes. And I landed on Camerwell. I thought, right, I'm going to go to Camerwell and I'm going to be a Dillaroo. And so I, I called directory and got a phone number for a pub. I, I just said, is there a pub in Camerwell? Can I have the number for it? And that was, I mean, that was the days before phones, you know, you had to ring directory. <laughs> nothing was, you know, nothing was at your fingertips. This was only 15 years ago. And so I rang directory, I rang the Camerwell Post Office Hotel. And I remember an old guy, Billy Palmer, had, was taking care of it at the time. And I just said, look, I'm, I'm Fee, I'm from Melbourne. I'd like to get up there and um, work in the outback you know, and um, he just said to me, can you pour grog? I said, no, I've never done it, but I'll, I can learn. 
he said, right, our girl, that's what I want to hear. And so I said, right, I'm getting on a bus. I jumped on a Greyhound bus, 72 hours. I can't remember how many stops it was. But I arrived in Winton, actually. This is interesting. When I left Melbourne, I was full black, you know, skivvy, uh, black pants, high heels, big hair, makeup. True Melbourneite. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, I, hadn't, I didn't know what to expect. And I, we stopped up at Winton on the bus, and I got out, and I remember gagging at the smell from the stuff up there. And we were allowed to use the bathrooms, and, and then I, we had it like an hour in Winton. So I went to the haberdashery shop there to see if um, I could buy some shorts. It was so hot. I'd never felt heat like that in my life. And they were laughing at me. They said, are oh, you part of the circus, are you, love? And at the time, they were making a movie up there, you see. And I must have looked like a real blonde. I was like, oh, my God, there's a circus in town. They <laughs> yeah, they all laughed at me. And they sold me a pair of men's boxes. That's all they had. They didn't have women's shorts. And I remember wearing a singlet in those boxes up to Camerwell. It was so hot. And then... Um, an old couple, Noel, Noel and Colleen, picked me up from the bus at about midnight. It rolled into Camberwell. I couldn't see anything, you know, I couldn't see what the town was, how it was, um, you know, sort of set out. And I got up in the morning and I walked outside and it was the first time I'd ever seen Aboriginal people. Yep. And so I couldn't, I was like, shit, what have I done? Where am I? It was just one main, one main street. And my first day, they handed me the keys to a, an old um, Toyota cruiser. They gave me a cassette tape of the Dixie Chips and a baseball bat. And, that, and at that time too, I'll, at the Camerwell Post Office Hotel, you, sent, you would um, sell to the indigenous down one side and um, the white fellas on one side and I couldn't get over that. And yeah. I think it was probably my third or fourth bloke that came in on the uh, indigenous side and he threatened me with a knife, pulled out the bat. I just said, well, I'm crazy too, mate. And that was my first experience with that over there. But they were brilliant, those guys. Hey, come back later that day, that bloke, and ask me on a date. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Shit, it was funny. And I also remember the first time a guy came in, he's like, you got a, what, got a box of Red Paradise, gal? And I would have no clue. So I went in and I was looking for a box of Red Paradise and everyone was laughing at me at the bar. It was uh, mid-strength. Mystery, uh -huh. yeah, yeah, or out of a pint of gull, babe. And I was looking for gull beer. I was like, shit, we don't have gull beer, guys. <laughs> yeah. Did but, you blame you the know, New Zealand accent or was it just the... <laughs> no, just, they had that heavy Australian accent. Hey, I'd never heard that. There was really yeah, that real deep Australian accent out there. But look, I tell you what, best six to eight weeks of my life I had a ball. And the reason I wanted to go to the pub out there was to meet people that were living... Well, I didn't know how to become a jewellery, so I wouldn't have known how to the avenues and I met some great people and sh sure enough they put me on to a great manager out at Maydown station just outside of Mount Isa and that's where I cut my teeth and I couldn't have cut my teeth with a more professional mob they taught me they were perfect perfectionists so I got a great start as a jewellery. And so at the station though you you weren't quite a jillaroo straight up were you weren't you a cook? And no <laughs> I, I was still too shy to ask to be a jillaroo yeah. Um, I don't know. Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported? Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market.
In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low-cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. Agilary just held such great esteem to me back then. I mean, of course, we were flooded with McLeod's daughters at that point too, you know, that was a big thing in New Zealand. Um, yeah, I went as a cook. I was offered the position as a cook and I didn't even really know how to cook because my mum was a great cook. So she did everything as we were growing up. She was, so I called her and said, all right, I've got a job as a cook. I'm going to need some help. And she sent me the Edmunds cookbook. And that's how I learned how to cook. And it turned out I did have some of mum's skills um, I had. So just naturally I was the cook for about six months. And then they were out mustering one day. And Jim, Jimmy Hagen said to me, can you come out and give us a hand? I'm going to put you on one of these old pensioner horses. You'll be right. Don't worry. It's safe, safe houses. And I got out there and that poor pensioner horse must have wished, you know, he would have rude the day I jumped on him. I was just started blading cattle. I watched what the other guys were doing and just was up it. And at the end of the day, Jim said, um, yeah, I'll hire another cook. You stay with us. And so I want to ask you though, on the, so the confidence front, because to me, like you didn't, you don't come across as a insecure or not confident person, but was it, what was it back then? I was the same, but I just didn't, um, I didn't know that, you know, it was so easy to do. I didn't realize the channels were open to be, you know, I could have said to Jim in the beginning, I'd like to be a delivery. I guess too, I was being respectful and I wasn't sure of the protocol basically. Yeah. 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 And so how long were you up north there running around chasing cows? And Okay. So I was up at Maydowns there for a good two, two and a half years. I, that was brilliant. And the best part about that was Jimmy Hagen was a perfectionist and he showed me the right way to do things from the very beginning. And I had a brilliant team, you know, and I'm still great friends with that whole crew today. We've never lost contact. Um, and they're some of my closest friends in this world. Um, so I did two and a half years for him and then I decided to go, I wanted to work for, I wanted to go up the Cape. I'd heard wild stories of that, throwing bulls and bull catching and all that sort of thing. So I ended up applying for a job with Xander McDonald. With Xander McDonald? Yeah. Yeah, wow. So, yeah. And so I got the job and I rolled into De- uh, Devoncourt Station. I had my mate take me out there. And anyway... I'll never forget it. We'd actually had a bit of a romantic um, rendezvous with this bloke a few weeks prior at the Mount Isa Rodeo. You know how it is. (laughs) Full of rum rum and bravado. And anyway, we thought we'd never see the bloke again. And we turned up there and who walked out as the fucking head stop when was this bloke? I could not believe it. What are the odds? What are the odds? (laughs) But there was... I think it was 13 girls there. It was the highest amount of um, Jillaroos they'd had ever. And um, the next door neighbouring stations had come over, all the ringers had come over to see what was sort of on offer for the year. And I was the last one to arrive. And when this bloke walked out and he said, G'day, Fee, how are you going? And all the girls, because he was a really handsome bloke too, and all the girls were like, Oh my God, you know, the head stuck in. <laughs> and I said, 
yeah, wheeled him at the last radio. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so um, that was my, oh, I was terrible walking into that big group of girls. I was just, I was so, because I was a Kiwi as well, you know, and and I don't, didn't dress like a Jillaroo. I have always um, refrained from the shirt and jean thing, but um, I was more of like a tank top and um, long skirts, whatever. I always had a bit of a fashion going on. Anyway, um, yeah, so we did, We I think we did, you know, when they, they got us all to ride a few horses around and see who was competent, who wasn't, put us into groups, and they just said to me, right, you'll go to the Cape with these fellas, these young boys, and we went, to, I think it was Stadbroke for a few months until it had dried up, and, yeah, that was just, <laughs> that was quite a classic experience, actually. But I drove up to the Cape with these young fellas, and we got started, and... Yeah, that was, I mean, that was some of the greatest years of my life was up in the Cape. Shit, I'm, that was the best experience I've ever had. Unreal. Yeah, wow. Can I yeah. ask you, yeah. I'm curious on the Xander mm. McDonald front. Obviously, yeah. he, he's quite a prominent or a very prominent name now, given the award. Yeah. What, what was it that lured you towards him back then? Well, I knew he had stations up in the Gulf and um, I'd heard that he was, actually, I think he was the, a good mate of mine's, his parents were the, a godparents of a great mate of mine. And um, yeah, she just said, why don't you go and try Xander McDonald? And he, I mean, he, he allowed me to be the first head stock woman off my own merit. There'd been a stock woman before and um, her parents were the managers at that point up there in the Cape. But I remember him turning up to Dunbar and saying to me, congratulations, you're the first stock woman off your own merit in the Cape in a hundred years. Wow. Yeah, and I was absolutely shit at being headstock when I needed to be with, um, there was, I was surrounded by, no, I was good, but I was surrounded by guys that were more capable than me at that point. But I was, um, you know, I was literate for a starter and I had great man, people management skills. So in that regard, I was great, but uh, I ended up saying to the manager, Peter, I think I'd be better suited to the Wiener camp and... Once I got into, I ran the Wiener camp in the end and it was brilliant. That's where I was suited. You know, I, I knew my strengths and my strengths weren't getting on um, a rogue, you know, rogue Mustang on a Monday morning and getting bucked off, you know, five times and then handing it over to the, the ruse to ride and doing another one. That wasn't, the boys are 100% better suited to that. So I just said, look, you know, I think you should shift me down to being the Wiener camp head stocky and uh, I was brilliant. I loved it. Yeah. Mm. Oh, you can yeah. see it. And, yeah. And so finding your groove though, you've, you've worked yourself into a, f- a fair groove now, but it came through the live export trade and jumping yeah. on boats. And so did that so come I, out of your time up in the Cape? So I was up in the Cape and then um, I actually uh, went to apply for the Queensland police. I thought I'd do a bit of jewelry and I'll go down and have a, let, I, because I wanted to work out bush as a policewoman and um, help the youth of Australia actually. I saw it was a bit um, like, especially up in Kawanyama, where I'd, we were situated up there near Dunbar, going in the weekends, and it was just—I was quite shocked, actually, actually at the youth of us, um, especially out bush. Anyway, that was my plan, but I failed the fitness test. I turned up smoking bloody Dunhill Reds and drinking coffee. I ran over a wheelie bin, and I decided not fit in. That's for sure. Um, yeah, I failed. Um, was it the bloody? Spot, uh, beak test. Oh, yeah. That old yeah. chestnut. That old chestnut. And um, <laughs> then they wanted me to climb a rope to the ceiling. I thought, oh, shit, no, that's not for me either. Um, so 
I decided to, I hitchhiked actually, up to, um, I worked for a lady, she had Buchanan Downs, near Dunmara. And I had, I'd heard about her, so I hitchhiked up there. I think I hitchhiked. No, I didn't actually. I had my Luxie at that point. And um, I, got, I arrived up there and did three months for her. And she was pretty hard work, that bird that I was working for there. And my father came to stay while I was there. And he just said to me, there is a fine line between brilliance and lunacy. And this bird's on the line. I would just move from here if I were you. And yeah. so I packed up and left and I went up to Darwin. Um, a gal pal of mine was doing the books for an export uh, depot and I popped in to see them, Ben and Simone Seidel. I was given their address and I went round to their family home and sat and had a cup of tea and then straight directly went into wines. And, um, At nine o'clock in the morning? No, 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 this is the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> She'd probably be part of for a wine at nine in the morning, actually, Olga. Um, and then I started and just went from there. And actually it was, well, I'd had cattle in the yards and um, the stock buyer at the time, I, I asked him, should I, well, Eve, she said, no, do you want to jump on a boat? And I said, right, I'll have a go. And I did. And I thought it was going to be the only boat that I would ever do. So I made the most of it. I had a brilliant time. It was the bee crux. I sailed on the bee crux. I think we had about 25,000 head or something. Oh, no, no, I'd tell a lie. It was 11,000. And I was with all these young blokes and I had a war. Yeah, I'd never been to Indonesia before. Yeah. And what, how does it work? You, you load the cattle up in, in Darwin and yeah. get them to Indonesia. And is, that, is your job done then? No. So... I worked for Wallard for a couple of years. They were, great. They were brilliant. They, I had the best training. They put me through my accreditation. They really looked after me. Um, so I couldn't have started once again, couldn't have started with better guys. I had brilliant mentors on the ships. They, um, I had Catherine Marriott was teaching nutrition. Oh, yeah. They, really, they put a lot of time into me, that's for sure. And then I ended up going, I got a phone call from a bloke, Ian Helene, and he said, right, I've got some cattle going over to Broome. Oh, sorry, Broom, up to Jakarta. Can you jump on the ship? I've got a thousand bulls. And I said, oh, I should have never done, done a boat by myself. He said, you'll be right. I turned up and it was this tiny little boat. I didn't even have a bedroom. I had to sleep in the lounge, the crew lounge. They just yeah. put a curtain up for me. And a thousand bulls. I got to the other end. And um, after I was done, Ian just said, righto, whatever you did this trip, I need you to go back to Broom and do it on the next one. Righto, you're on. So I sort of, with on the ship, I... With Wellard, I had a headstock person, and I think I was headstock person on Swagman. I worked with a guy, Charlie, for about a year and a half. Just the two of us had the Swagman. And then, uh, I can't really remember, shit, it was so long ago, but when I jumped on for Ian, that's where I found my groove, was with Ian. Because all of a sudden I was by myself. I was in charge. So my job was to get the cattle to Indonesia, and Ian's just a private exporter from Perth, so I would stop in Indonesia, and I would um, just ensure the cattle was safe and going to the right facilities. And then SCAS really ramped up and I was asked to go over and set up the facilities for SCAS. So I was over in Jakarta for about three or four years. Yeah, right. SCAS, yeah. Exporter Supply Chain Assurance Scheme. I've got that one nailed. Yeah, I beg your pardon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I beg your pardon. Yeah, no. And so, so I want to know, you're obviously exporting during the time when the ban came about. So, no, um, 2011, I was actually on a Wellard ship. We were heading into Panjang and we got a phone call to say, you've got, uh, this will be the last shipment 
will be doing for a while. And I think we had a certain amount of time to discharge them. And it was terrible. The Indonesians were really, it was it had really affected them. But of course I was angry, I was pissed off because I'd just seen the footage too. And so I thought, no, nah, we deserve it. We've got to get this sorted. Mm. Yeah. And so mm. in terms of, in terms of that process from when the ban mm. happened, mm. what was your involvement during that time? And then obviously. So during the ban, I went mustering for six weeks out at Tipperary. Um, just like a lot, a lot of other stockies, we had to go back to um, cattle work. So I did, I think it was six or eight weeks at Tipperary and a few other stations for a young contractor. And then once you cranked up again, um, I did some shipments and um, yeah, I just sort of, John gave me a lot of the, John from our office, he was the East Coast manager at that time. He sort of uh, was schooling me on what I needed to do and what was involved. And yeah, I ended up just after a shipment, stopping in Jakarta, I hired a, I leased a apartment off the internet and I did not know what I was doing and I ended up in an Islamic complex. So it was a bit of an eye opener when I arrived there. And um, I remember my, the owner of the apartment was a transgender Indonesian and she was a famous makeup artist actually. And I was really shocked because it took me a while to work out am I, who am I talking to, bloke or Sheila here. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. So anyway, I had an apartment there and I would, <clears throat> I was get, given a driver and then every day I would just receive my orders of where to go and basically Ian just said right go out there and sort it out for us mm. wow and so is and there a, yeah is there a time during that that really kind of stands out as a, a defining moment or uh during the setting up of the facilities yeah particularly after particularly after the ban like obviously the relationships were yeah well pretty yeah well the first thing I did actually with when I started that role was I realized I have to build great relationships with these guys so that they'll trust me and allow me to help them. And I mean, I would go out to facilities at 11 o'clock at night and I would sit there till three or four in the morning and just, they want to talk. They want to sit down. They want to drink a million coffees and smoke darts. God, almighty, I would rusty the next day. After the, but I would just sit in there and I would just listen to them and I was learning the language so I could understand what they were saying. And I, I understood where they were at, but I was like, I also pushed our MO as well. And it got to the point where our, our clients and the facilities that we were putting cattle through, they allowed us to do everything. And they played by the rules. And in the end, they wanted, to do, they wanted more help. They wanted advice. They wanted the support. And I found that was just from those nights of sitting and talking shit for hours and just building relationships and turning up with a few treats for everybody and finding out who was married to who and always asking after the wife and the children and the little things. It's all about the relationships. So um, in that regard, yeah, the company that I export have been working with for eight years, Helene, that's how we got off the ground, especially just gaining that trust from our um, importers and there personnel yeah and starting from the bottom too oh like you know mm. rather than rolling in and going straight to the big guy i would always go to the small guy who was hosing off the floor or feeding cattle or something and talk to him yeah yeah right it's yeah um, it, it like it's being a human but being a decent human as well isn't it 
you know what? That is where the success comes from. You've just got to, people want to be loved. They want to be listened to. And you know, it doesn't hurt showing a bit of love actually, but there's a fine line. I'm fairly brutal. You ask anyone in the industry, I can, yeah, I've pissed off a few people, but at the end of the day, they will, they've responded. Not, I haven't pissed off a few people. Well, I probably have, but you know, I've been straight with a few people and, you know, I've made them do things they probably didn't want to do, but they should have done and they had to do it. They wanted to comply and yeah. And so in what aspect is that though? Is that as in people not treating the animals right or? or... No, everybody. D- See, I, I think there's a big difference between having a bad day and being a cruel bastard. And I never once met a cruel person in live export. Mm-hmm. But of course, you, there are times when, you know, you might get an animal running up the race and he might get his leg caught. That's not being cruel. You know, that's um, just having a bad day and they'll, they'll bang onto it. They'll do, you know, they don't muck around. Now, they're good. And all they needed was some advice, some help, yeah. some support. That's all. And so what's your favourite part yeah. of doing the, the export boats? Oh, shit, it was getting off and flying home, but um, <laughs> no. Um, well, just putting cattle on a ship and knowing that I always bring myself and I, down to the level, I'm like, right, what would the animal want right now? You know, what does that animal need? It's yeah. very basic. You know, it's very basic stuff, shipping cattle. And um, this talk of death ships, it's what a load of bullshit, you know. And I want to get that through to everybody too. Live export ships are, <laughs> you know, you've got ventilation 24 hours a day. The air changes 60 times a minute. They've got space. They've got access to quality Australian fodder 24-7. You've got fresh water access 24-7. They are so well taken care of on those ships, you know. And if there's an issue the stockman will contact the exporter. Not an issue so much, but say there might be pens that are no good to take six head. And the stockman would say, right, our next trip we'll put four head in there, you know, like yeah. that. Yeah, there's stockmen, uh, the staunchest people I've ever met in my life, 100%. They, yeah. you know, we don't, we get, uh, we're not, we're under the radar stockies. But I tell you what, between us, we, um, and stock it, yeah. If stockies have got want to do something or change something, or if they see something that's not right, they'll speak up. You know, yeah. So protective of our cargo, really we are. So yeah. Mm. And that like that respect piece is that something that mm. like does it go back to your your childhood and growing up like that, or? I think I don't know. I mean, my age bracket. I'm forty years old, so all my pals have been raised with. To respect people, yeah. You know, and if you didn't, you got to clip around the ear, kick yeah. up the ass, yeah. Um, and that was how we were raised. You know, we were raised to respect our elders and the people around us and look after people. Yeah, and can I say so? Mm. Um, like the way that everyone, and I've actually been really surprised that. So I grew up in Sydney, which I think I've told you before, but yeah. Um, obviously, last week we or last two weeks ago with the golf one going missing. And I've been so surprised by the support that there has been from people in industry, uh, which I want to get to on your side, but mm. I've been blown away because like growing up in Sydney, I've got people who are, grew up in Sydney, lived in Sydney and they were sharing the post the other day. Yeah. To, to continue yeah. The search. Now, how, how has the last couple of weeks been for you? 
Shit, oh, okay. Um, you don't have to answer up. it if you don't want to. No, actually, yeah, I will answer that. I w- had been up to Indonesia on a shipment, arrived back, and I've done a few ships over there. I've been sort of staying home here in Brisbane because my mother's quite sick. So when COVID started, she was my first priority, of course. She's in care. Um, and then, of course, Apple Tree Flat took off because online just went nuts. And yeah. Yeah. So I guess I was quite busy and the exporter I'm working with in Perth, they were very understanding of that and they've supported me all the way through. So I was spending a lot of time here, but I did the odd ship. Mm-hmm. And this, I haven't experienced this hotel quarantine with the police before. I've been quarantined in a hotel, but in Darwin, they just throw you in a hotel and say, ring us if you need something, you know. But yeah. in Townsville, I arrived and I was met, you know, by a cop with three bits of you know, artillery strapped to his leg and a taser gun. It was just overboard. And I was shocked, you know. And I was taken up a rubbish chute up to my hotel room. I was made to stand two metres away from him while he read me my rights. And I was shocked. I'd never experienced something like this before. And I was in a hotel room, five by five. Luckily, I had a balcony. Yeah. But that, that in itself had me... And it, uh, it was just a big shock. I mean, it might sound like I'm being a bit of a princess, but if any for one has gone through that and you've never had to experience something like that, it was a bit of a um, it really sort of weighed on me. But anyway, it was the second, I think I'd been there two days and I got the phone call because there were Kiwi, Kiwi stockmen on board and a lot of no, people um, know who I am and they thought it was me. And so the phone call. Yeah, they started coming through thick and fast. And it was, I'd actually had two mates that were supposed to be on that boat. And of course, I had no news. And um, the first sort of couple of hours, I'm sitting here looking at David, like I was on the phone to David when I got the news. And, oh, shit, I don't know. I can't explain it. I think it's when you're a stock person and you've sailed on the ships, and I've sailed on that sister ship to the Gulf one. So it's exactly the same layout. And I just, um, I just could, every time I shut my eyes, I could think, shit, I hope they went in this spot. And what, oh, You know, it's different when you know what a ship's like and you know what it's like being out on the ocean. Mm. So, yeah, it, t- it took on a whole different uh, emotional, yeah, it was pretty hectic. Old. So I was in the isolation for a week. I ended up turning my phone off for about three days um, because people were calling me wanting answers and I didn't have answers, you know. Mm. And... Um, I reached out to a, the sister of a young of one of the young Kiwi folks because no one, I thought well, no one's really helping the Kiwis. You know they're not a huge livestock uh, live export nation. In fact, you know a lot of people in New Zealand don't like and don't agree with live export for whatever reason. Yeah, and I think that, you know there was a lot of talk of these pregnant heifers. Well, they weren't pregnant heifers going for slaughter. You know that's the thing. One thing that pisses me off about the activists if they're gonna put their information out. They put it out properly, you know, stir the pot. So there was a lot of Kiwis too that probably were unsure about whether they should support or not. So but this comes, it comes back to the people though at this stage, doesn't it? Well, well, you know, for us, for normal people. Yeah. And that's where the activists showed how fucking nutty they are, you know, getting on social media and the things that they said were just disgusting. Of course we care it. And this is the thing, they don't understand that the people that work in this industry, uh, and I get, I, well, I understand actually, you know, they're entitled to their opinions. I understand that, but they were, they, they were rough. They were rough. So I re- anyway, I reached out to Fern 
and just let her know, let her and her family know that everybody in Australia um, and the live export community is thinking about her and her family. And maybe that message hit her pretty hard. She messaged me back the next day. And she just said, can you give me some advice? I need to know how many life rafts were on that boat. And I said, right, yeah, I can give you that advice because I know. And so we took it from there and I've just stayed in constant contact with Fern and um, been a source of information if she needs it and just uh, um, doing my best for the Kiwis. There's plenty of Australians helping the Australians and I've totally got the Australians mm. back as well. But I thought I'm a livestock leader. I'm with the Livestock Collective. And a lot of people know me. I do a lot of mentoring of young stockies in the industry. And I've got lots of mates and family in the industry. It's been so good to me, but it's my time. I think, you know, I need to be there for the Kiwis here at this time. Yeah. Yeah. And so you just mentioned that you're both, you know, the, the Livestock Collective and your Young Live Export Network. And so obviously... Yeah. I'm not allowed in the Young Live Export Network anymore. I'm over 40, but I ah, think I'm like... Bugger. They keep including me everything. I'm like the the hot auntie that just rolls in, drinks all the booze and hits on everyone and then leaves, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even get to pay, I don't even have to pay a membership this year, so, yeah. And I provide <laughs> some stuff for this, um, little um, starting packs and stuff. No, they're all my buddies, eh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, <laughs> just just there for the halftime entertainment. <laughs> Pretty much. I think they just, yeah, involve me in everything still for a bit of a shock fact, a bit of laugh, you know? I was taking the piss out of them, yeah. Yeah. No, they're mm -mm. a bloody impressive group of young people. And so, yeah, yeah I'm, glad, I'm really glad you mentioned that. And so mm. what is it that's, I suppose, awesome to see with, with these young people that have gone and created this organisation? Is it? Times the, lives, um, the Livestock Collective or uh, well, Young sorry. Export Network. Uh, to, yeah. like those guys that started that up, John and Pat, and of course, Kari. Well, I work with John and Pat okay. in my export company. And, I mean, yeah, so we've started at the bottom together and, worked our way up and so yeah i just support them i mean those guys they're brains they're brawn they're the whole package yeah. and um they've got a directive and you know it's the new generation yeah absolutely and, and a, a lot of them are expressing that confidence of getting out there and sharing their stories and perspectives and thoughts which is awesome to see because for me like <laughs> I've, i only know live exports through what i've seen and hear so, so tell me that. Well, you tell me then. So, what did you hear about live export? Yeah, well, I suppose I'm lucky because I'm in the agriculture industry, so I'll go and deep dive for a bit more information. Yeah, but you must have a lot of mates that are just like city blokes, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and it's it's the same. Well, I think it's in any of these things where animals are involved and people see signs of cruelty. Um, yeah, there there is a fuss kicked up, which I think is absolutely important. It's important. Hundred percent. Yeah. 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 It. But it's not, not fair, by exception. Though. Yeah. And and well, the exception shouldn't be reflected as the norm. And that's the thing, you know, um, that is not the norm. Mm. That is, we export cattle every day. We work in the in market every day. And what, there's, you know, a couple of photos out there that keep just getting thrashed. You know, why don't we thrash the good stuff that's happening? Yeah. And I think that's the thing, like, you can make, the thing with, videos and phones you can make something look like however you want to portray it 100%. like one thing which a lot of people don't think about when it comes to live export like it it's happening so people can eat get access to protein so yeah you can help people and i think that's something that's overlooked so as you've moved away and out of um 
being on the boats as much, you found another hobby which has turned into a business? I was in Jakarta for quite a few um, years and I had to have domestic helpers. So this is about apple tree flare. Yeah. And how it started. And so when you're living over there, I was doing my own cleaning in my own garden and the chief of my block, so the every, um, they call it a cluster, so it's about five streets and um, it's all secure. And the chief of my cluster came over and saw me in the garden one day. He said, no, you must hire a local. And I was like, you've got about fucking five minutes, five seconds to get off my property, mate, get. And um, I couldn't believe how he spoke to me. But then I thought, well, I'd better play by the rules. So I ended up hiring a couple of young girls to come and clean. I've got to have them for nine hours a week minimum. Yeah. So they turned up and they were hopeless. But one of them was really cool. She's a cool chick. And I, you know, I just sort of got, not friendly, but we talked a bit. And um, I just said, have you got any other skills? Because you're not very good at cleaning. And I quite <laughs> like you. And she said, I am good sewer. And um, I used to make my own kerchiefs. And, well, not, I used to cut my own material and wear them as scarves. I always have as a Jillaroo. And I had thought, should I want to start my own kerchief, scarf, bandana hmm. business for the cowgirls? Because I just thought there was no... There wasn't much choice out there. You know, you had your canteen bandanas and then you might want to, you could import something from America, but that was about it. And so I started doing that with her. I bought a sewing machine and she was really good. And then um, another mate of mine, this is how the girls started with the trafficking. Um, I talked to you about this the other day. A good friend of mine had been working as a vet in Indonesia. And of course, same, same deal. He had to have domestics in his home and, he had a young girl that was working there. She'd been sent by her family at 14 or 15. It's quite normal over there. The father will send the young girl away. I've got a saying in Indonesia. If you're out living in the communities and you're quite poor, the impoverished areas, if your wife has a girl, the father will go home and take the day off because he sees that, she, that you know, she'll be worth money to him in the future. And if it's a boy, he'll continue playing the paddock. It's his. Anyway, so I got... Called from my friend, the doctor, and said, look, I'm in a position here. I've got a young ex-domestic. She's been held captive in Batam um, because they get sent out to, like, Singapore and um, for cleaning domestic work, but they get treated terribly. It's unreal. Mm. Ugh. Anyway, she'd run away from the agent. The agent had taken her passport off her because the last guy that she had, the last family she'd been working with in Singapore, the father beat her with a cord because the son had pulled a cupboard door off and she got beaten for it and she complained and she was blacklisted you see and so the agent had her in a small cupboard basically took her passport off her and they were about to cut her into a million pieces and she escaped and she got to a mosque in Batam and she called my friend the doctor and the doctor called me and said right I'm transferring this money I need you to put it in this account um that was to the agent to just like basically pull them up from finding her and killing her. Yeah. And he said, I'm going to fly her over to your place. Can you take care of her? And I was in Kalimantan at the moment, at that time working um, with another project, a breeder project. And I got my little offside at Yudi. He went and picked her up from the airport and took her back to our house in um, Jakarta. And when I arrived the next day, she was sitting around and I introduced myself and made her a cup of tea and she was sort of, up in my grill and I just said, right, stop. Um, 
what you, right, we've got jobs to do. Let's keep moving. Like I just kept her moving. Yeah. And she was so smart, this young girl. Hey, I couldn't believe it. And she was really cheeky and she had the confidence, which is quite, well, I found quite unusual for um, an Indonesian domestic. Anyway, I just liked her sass. So I was like, what, can you sew? <laughs> and she said, yeah, I can. And I was like, right, you're on the team. Don't you have a job? It's like, you've got any other mates that are being held captive that can sew? And yeah, and that's how it started. So, but you've got to be very careful when you're working with, um, you know, rescued traf trafficked women. Because um, if you look into Indonesian history, a lot of people that have tried to stop trafficking have been assassinated. Mm. So I'm very, I, I play that side of my business down. It's, you know, it's not, yeah. It's up to those girls to tell their story, but they are living the dream, and I feel so proud that they, I mean they're so talented. Why shouldn't they have an opportunity? Yeah, and yeah, I can't get enough of them. They're just brilliant, and I've watched them in the last two to three years go from meek woman with no rights and no aspirations to, you know, now they give me cheek because I work with them through sort of WhatsApp. Now I have to directly run through WhatsApp because my studio's over there and they are just a completely different woman. <laughs> and when this COVID's over and I can actually really open Apple Tree flat up even more, well, it won't, it's not me. It's never just been me. It'll be me and the two, my two main girls. Yeah. And I, yeah, um, they're coming on this ride with me for sure. And where do you want to take it? Um, well, I don't want to change my standard operating procedure, which is I like it. I don't want to, you know, saturate the market. I want my gear to still have that handmade quality. If people have to wait a couple of months for a product, we'll suck it up. If you want my gear, that's how it's going to be. Mm. I do need more people um, sewing, but at this point I can't. And my girls won't hire anyone because I've always said to them, I don't care who comes into our group as long as they're honest. And they just like, they haven't found any honest people yet, they reckon. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Yeah, but... Um, where do I want to take this? I want to be able to provide a really quality product for anybody from, you know, the guy, the woman cleaning toilets in a hotel to, you know, um, the senator. And that's what I am doing at the moment, actually. Yeah. So, yeah, I, don't, I want women to feel good because I can get this beautiful material at great prices. Yeah. And that, that's why I can have a great price on my shirts. And the quality of the product is next to none. Those girls are amazing. And so I've worked with the girls to show them and teach them that, you know, you can't make a, a product like you would here in Indonesia because the Indonesians don't give a shit. But, you know, we do. The Westerners, mm. we do. We, I'm checking everything. And now they check everything. They're amazing. So, yeah, they're up to standard. And when COVID first started, I was micromanaging the hell out of them, you know. And in the end, they were like, can you just back off? We're okay. We've got it. And they are, they have got it. They've been unreal. They just took the range straight away. That's like, cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's just such a, it's cool. If I died tomorrow, well, I'd be proud of that for sure. And so I've got a question which I've been asking people on each podcast. And obviously you've, you do a lot around building networks and supporting people, obviously in Australia and Indonesia. But if you were, if you were talking to students in say year 10 or 11 and I do say like, yeah, what would be your advice to them in terms of agriculture, but more so what would be your life advice for young people that are moving into exploring what the okay, well, is about? For girls, I would say what you have 
is what God gave you. Make the best of it. Don't worry about what anyone else has got to say. Rise above and just be confident. Who cares? You know, you might, I just think the girls of this, the girls, the younger generation of women are, yeah, it's not a true confidence. Get a true confidence. I mean, I'm no oil painting, but I will walk into a place like I own the joint. Why not? And people, so that's what I would say to the girls. Get some real confidence, you know. Believe in yourself. I haven't got anything. Who cares? You fail. But for um, as an overall group, you know, boys and girls, I would say keep your truth, but be respectful. Don't be arrogant. No one likes a young kid straight out of school or uni that's got too much to say, especially to somebody um, older in the industry. You know, if you've got if you've got an opinion, you know, take that mentor or older person aside and say hey I've got this idea and start standing around spouting off because you actually look like a dick even if you are right it's about respecting your elders it's about respecting the people about around you and I would give this advice take the time to learn about other people you know ask them how's your wife find out their wife's name how many kids have they got you know ask people about themselves and ask the guys at the bottom of the, you know, the ladder. Don't always worry about impressing the big guy. It's the little guys, you know. You've got to look after everybody else. And um, there's nothing like being loved. And for me, I just like to make sure that everyone feels good and loved. So, and that's, hey, look, from 10 years later, I started out as a female, a Kiwi, in an industry full of Australian men. And I'm still here and I'm still the boss of all those men. No. <laughs> <laughs> no but they're my mates and they've treated me like a sister. I've worked hard and I'm a good person. I just be, just be a good person. Well, that's another episode, Dan, and I hope you guys enjoyed that chat with Fee today. She's an incredibly interesting character and you can find out more about her at her brand, Apple Tree Flats NZ. I'll throw a link in the show notes anyway. Thanks to everyone for, who reached out last week with information of people we should get in touch with we would definitely be following some of the suggestions up and we look forward to bringing some new podcast guests over the next couple of weeks look after yourselves guys and chat to you next week